Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to uh, encourage you and invite you to open it to Luke chapter 14. Uh, We are smack dab in the middle of a series called Rhythms of Grace, and throughout the series we are exploring a number of spiritual disciplines together, and we have been treating them in pairs. So thus far we have covered uh, listening and speaking, we've covered fasting and feasting, and then last week Andy led us in a study of solitude, and when I originally mapped out the series, my thought was that we would sort of do solitude one week and then community the next week. Uh, When I started thinking about that, and I think it's important that we take time to withdraw and be alone with God, and also that we take time to be in community with others, but as I started thinking about that, I I have preached on community a number of times, and so this morning, I actually want to focus more narrowly on a specific aspect of community, and that is hospitality. Now, I don't know uh, what you think of when you hear the word hospitality. Uh, maybe you, you might think of someone who's good at throwing dinner parties and the like, someone who is a good host or hostess in some fashion. I think many of our experiences with hospitality today are experiences with commercialized hospitality. And hotels were the first, really, to commercialize hospitality. Before hotels came along, ordinary households would simply open their homes to strangers In the uh, medieval period, it was monasteries that provided a resting place for weary travelers and cared for the ill. You probably know that we get our word hospital from the word hospitality because they were places that offered hospitality care for the sick. In the same way, the word pub is the shortened version of public house. And in pre-industrial cities, eateries were classless. I don't mean that they lacked class. I mean that they lacked distinctions based on class. And so you would have rich and poor both dining at the same table and experiencing hospitality together. Now, there's nothing wrong with hotels or hospitals or restaurants. There's a lot of good, a lot of efficiency that comes from them. But I think we've lost something in the process with all of the commercialized hospitality. We have lost the simple understanding of what it means to extend hospitality to someone else. And so my aim today really is to help restore a proper understanding of the practice or discipline of Christian hospitality. And to do that, I want to focus our attention on a passage from Luke chapter 14. We're actually going to look at most of Luke 14 this morning, but I want to begin with just three verses in the middle of the chapter and then work our way backwards and then forwards from there. So let's begin. I want to look at verses 12 to 14 in Luke chapter 14. This is God's word, and this is what it says. He said also to the man who had invited him, that's Jesus who said this, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So you will be repaid at the resurrection 
of the just. Well, I think these have to be among the most challenging words uttered by Jesus, aren't they? And they're challenging not because they're hard to understand, but because most of us simply do not do what Jesus tells us to do. As Mark Twain famously put it, it ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Now, I think he meant something different by that than what I mean by that. Jesus, the the difficult thing about Jesus' instructions here aren't that they are hard to understand, but that we tend to ignore them. And when was the last time you hosted a dinner party like the one that Jesus highlights here? When was the last time you made up your guest list based on these criteria? So what I want to do is I want to make three observations from what we have here in Luke chapter 14. The first two come directly from these three verses, and the third one comes from the verses on either side of these three verses. And the reason I'm doing it that way is because I don't think we can properly understand what Jesus is saying here, apart from understanding the context in which he said it. But I also think it's important that we just try to reckon with what it is that Jesus says to us here. So observation number one is this. We tend to associate with those we have affinity with and avoid those we don't. Now, this is simple human nature. Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. See, Jesus knows that our default setting is to gravitate to people who are just like us. So if we weren't in the middle of COVID restrictions and all of that, and I said, look, I'm going to give you $1,000, and tomorrow night I want you to host a dinner party. I'll look after all of the catering and all that stuff. All you need to do is provide a guest list. My guess is that you would write down the names of your friends your relatives, your rich neighbors, if you've got them, you would write down a list of names of the people you are most comfortable associating with in a social setting. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a meal with your friends or your relatives or even your rich neighbors. That's not Jesus' point, actually. Jesus ate plenty of meals with his disciples, those closest to him. I mean, the Last Supper seemed like an exclusive meal he shared with just his disciples, his friends. His point is that we shouldn't think we are fulfilling our call to hospitality when we only extend that kind of hospitality to people who are just like us or who can repay us in some sense. See, lots of our relationships have this kind of quid pro quo quality to them. I will do this for you, and there's an expectation or a hope that maybe you'll do something for me. And it's possible for us to think that we're actually, we're being really hospitable, or we are really hospitable people, when in fact our only hospitality extends to people who are just like us. I mean, we've all heard or seen stories or read stories about, you know, when someone is discovered to be like a crime boss or something and no one knew about it. And as they, you know, interview neighbors or others and they're like, I I can't believe that. I mean, they were always so, you know, nice to me or they were, seemed so nice with their kids, seemed like a family man. 
See, because we all kind of have this select group of people that we show hospitality to. I suspect this is the reason that most churches would describe themselves as friendly. You know, you ask them, say, oh yeah, we're a really friendly church. Now, they, they see themselves as friendly because they are friendly to one another, but they're not necessarily friendly towards outsiders who come in the door. They're not necessarily welcoming or hospitable in that sense. And Jesus actually speaks to this kind of thing elsewhere. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, there's nothing especially commendable about returning a favor. And I think it's good for us to reflect on that as individuals and as a church. Are we really being hospitable? Are we really extending hospitality, the kind that God wants us to? Commenting on these verses from Luke 14, Philip Reichen said this. He said, Jesus was distinguishing here between charity, which is a selfless act of love, and mere civility, which is a lesser virtue, Because it's more in our our self-interest. Civility has a place in life. But we should not make the mistake of thinking we're being charitable when in fact we're only being civil. Now look, the truth is in society we could all use a lot more civility, right? We could all use a lot more of that in our exchanges with each other. But Jesus is actually calling us to something more than that. And so at least part of what Jesus was doing here was just highlighting the fact that we tend to associate with those we have affinity with. We tend to invite our relatives, our friends, our brothers, and our rich neighbors. And we tend not to associate with those we don't have some sort of natural affinity with. But I think more than that, Jesus tells us that we are called to a radical kind of hospitality. So Jesus tells us both what not to do. Don't just invite your friends and your and your relatives, but also what to do. And listen now to verse 13. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. So when was the last time you did that? I mean, just think of the most recent meal you hosted. What did your guest list look like? Now, maybe it was just Thanksgiving, and and chances are, because of the COVID season, it was maybe just you and your bubble or something along those lines. But let's just kind of think outside of that. My guess is that most of our guest lists are made up of people just like us. So what's your normal pattern? In this, do you tend to invite anyone who's not in the same season of life as you? Do you invite anyone from a different socioeconomic position? Do you include anyone from a, who has a different ethnicity than you do? Would you extend an invitation to anyone with different political convictions? Back in the 1970s, there was a a, a missiologist, someone who studies missions and evangelism by the name of Donald McGravin. 
And he identified what he called the homogeneous unit principle. Now, you may never have heard of Donald McGravin. You may have never heard of the homogeneous unit principle, but it has definitely shaped and impacted the way churches and ministries go about what they're doing. His idea was, it's been very influential, his idea was that, that people become Christians fastest when they don't have to cross racial, linguistic, or class barriers. And the implication for churches and missionaries was that we need to create churches that cultivate homogeneity, right? Everyone is sort of the same. And you can see the outworking of that in churches that are designed for a specific target group, right? You know, we, are, we exist for young urban professionals, or we want to be connected in the arts community, or, or we've got some other group. This is our target market, so to speak. Now, that principle makes sense. I mean, we gravitate towards people who are just like us, so why not structure our ministries that way? But this is actually not what we see in the early church. This is not the kind of radical community or hospitality that Jesus calls us to or models for us. I I love the description of Jesus commissioning his 12 disciples. Here's how it reads in Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I emphasize that, or I actually bolded it for you, because I think it's fascinating that among Jesus' disciples, who he includes... He included both Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Just think about that for a minute. So Matthew was a tax collector. He was a Jewish man who collected taxes from his own people for the Roman government. He would have been seen as a sellout. And you can contrast him with Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was a political revolutionary. He didn't just think it was wrong to work for the Roman government. He wanted to overthrow it. And so you've got one guy who's working for the government, the other one who wants to burn it down. And Jesus says, I want you both to be my disciples. See, that's a radical kind of community. Now, if you've read through the Gospels, then you know that Jesus does this kind of thing all the time. I mean, he was just as comfortable having dinner at the home of one of the religious leaders as he was having dinner at the home of a tax collector or notorious sinner. But I think Jesus' point is even more than just, you know, invite people who are different from you. He's actually saying that we ought to invite those who wouldn't be able to return the favor to us. So we need to move out of that quid pro quo category altogether. And this actually starts to take us closer to the heart of Christian community or Christian hospitality. Here's how Paul says it in the book of Romans. He said, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. See, as Christians, we ought not to be so worried about trying to get in with the in crowd. Christian ministries are not 
designed to gather all the beautiful people together. We don't try to present our lives like the Instagram influencer. We are willing to associate with the lowly. And this has actually been the pattern wherever Christianity has flourished. In his book on the rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark says this about the spread of the Christian faith in the first century. And why it was so effective. Here's what he said. He said, to cities filled with homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. We can learn a lot from that. And I would just say Christian hospitality is exactly what our world needs right now. So this is not a lesser discipline. So what does this mean for us practically? I mean, how do we practice the kind of radical hospitality that Jesus calls us to? The short answer is, I don't know. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I suspect that the specifics for how we practice this kind of radical hospitality looks different for different people. In preparation for this message, I read through Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I found it both encouraging and convicting. And she gives this definition of radical hospitality. She said, radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Now, we could expand that beyond the home, but I think that definition captures the essence of what Christian hospitality is all about. Now, that definition is great on its own, but it's actually far more powerful when you consider her own story. Rosaria Butterfield was a professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. She was a lesbian and an outspoken critic of Christianity. She was doing research research on a book that she planned to write on the religious right when she was invited for dinner at the home of a pastor and his wife. And I want to read for you how she recounts what happened. And this is what she says, and I'm going to read a a number of paragraphs from her book. She says, going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in the LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be-tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seemed like a small-minded uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, 
denied a woman's right to choose and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. They believed in and manufactured superstitions about sin, which I believe was, as Freud declared, simply a cultural phobia deeply held by dupes whose thinking was manipulated by a universal obsessional neurosis. Thank Freud for that meaningful mouthful. But mostly, Christians just scared me to death. Our worldviews and the moral lens we used to make sense of things were incommensurable, unbridgeable. But there I was in their driveway, parking my red Isuzu Amigo truck decorated with my NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League bumper sticker, and lesbian labyrinth decals. So I sat in my truck in the driveway of this Christian home musing about the book I was writing on the religious right and their policies, practices, and narratives of hatred against people like me. To do this, I knew that I had to read the Bible, and I also knew that I needed to somehow get inside the head of a true believer. I believed that only a wacko or an idiot would believe that an ancient book was more relevant and real than the kindness, charity, good practices, open-mindedness, mindedness and personal experiences reflected in my lesbian community and how on god's green earth did i get here parked in the driveway of the enemy you might ask well the nice christians who invited me to dinner intrigued me the pastor ken smith wrote to me regarding an op-ed i had published in the syracuse post standard In it, I opposed the Christian men's movement, promise keepers for their backward and misogynist gender politics and their threat against democracy. I have always read all my hate mail, call me a masochist, and I came to the conclusion that Ken's letter of opposition was the kindest one I had ever received. I also liked the fact that Ken had the right pedigree to help me with my research. So when Ken and his wife, Floyd, invited me to dinner, I said yes. My motives were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. I considered Ken Smith my potential unpaid research assistant. But then she says this. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked me through the door, or walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station long before I ever walked through the doors of the church. The Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. The Christian home was where I wrestled with my sexual identity and where I first dared ask the question, is being a lesbian who I really am or is it how the the fall of Adam has made me? Is it my authentic identity or the distorted one that came through the power of Adam's imputed and original sin to render my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue? And she goes on to talk about how that experience 
radically changed her, changed her life as she finally submitted to Jesus. Look, that is the power and the impact that simple hospitality can have on another person. Now, I know not all stories are going to be that dramatic, but I would just say practicing hospitality can have a profound impact, and that's what we're called to. Third thing we need to understand, though, is that Christian hospitality is a response to God's grace. So here's where I want to broaden out our look at this passage. Why did Jesus say this when he said it? What prompted him to start talking about who we should and should not invite to a dinner party or a banquet? Well, the answer is found at the beginning of the chapter. I want you to look now at verses 1 to 6. And here's what it says. One Sabbath, when he went to dinner at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold... There was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox who has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus was having dinner at the house of a respected religious leader, a Pharisee, a prominent Pharisee, and suddenly, that's the way the text reads, behold, a man with dropsy appears before him. Now, in case you're wondering, dropsy is an old term used to describe what we would call edema. It's a condition where the body retains fluid and so it begins to swell and it can be quite serious. And this man, it seems like his condition was quite serious because everyone could see he had dropsy. And we don't know if he was a a plant from one of the religious leaders to see how Jesus would handle him or if he had just kind of barged into the dinner party the way Mary had on on a different occasion. Doesn't look like he was a regular guest since Jesus actually sends him on his way after healing him. But it's in that context that Jesus begins to talk about banquets and dinner parties and who should be there. And then in verses 7 to 11, he gives instructions about what to do when you're invited to to a party. Don't take the seat of honor. But then notice how verse 12 begins, the verse we started with this morning. It says, but he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner party or a banquet, don't do this, but do this. Now, maybe the Pharisee had invited the guy with dropsy as a way to test Jesus because it was a Sabbath. He wanted to see, would Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Or maybe the guy just showed up. But whatever prompted the man's appearance Jesus heals him as a way to demonstrate something about the kingdom of God. It's a much bigger issue or picture. Now, all of Luke 14 helps us understand who is invited to the banquet and who gets a place at the table. See, the Pharisees had this kind of self-important view of themselves. It seems like they kind of jockeyed for position around the table. I think that's part of what Jesus was highlighting in verses 7 to 11 when he says, he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying, look, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, 
Do not sit down at the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, look, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when, you, when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So I don't think Jesus was just giving etiquette tips here. Here's how you should behave at a banquet or at a dinner party. He's actually addressing the very heart of their assumptions about themselves. And by extension, he is addressing our assumptions about ourselves. So let's just extend the the metaphor of the kingdom of God being like a dinner party or a banquet. Everyone living in the first century would have assumed that the religious leaders should be seated at the places of honor. This is what the religious leaders would have assumed about themselves. I mean, I don't just belong at the table. I belong at a place of honor at the table. And Jesus says, not so fast. In fact, what he seems to be saying is that those who assume they have a right to be there because of their pedigree or their credentials don't belong at all. But people like the man with dropsy are the ones who actually get the host's attention. It's then that Jesus says what he says about who we should and shouldn't invite to the banquet. He then goes on to reinforce those truths. With a parable. I want you to listen now to verses 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I will go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be full. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Now the host in that parable, it's a familiar parable, represents God. And the question Jesus is asking is, Who is worthy to come to my banquet? The actual answer to that question is no one. Those who get in, get in solely because of the host's graciousness. Now there's another version of this parable that I know I've read for some of you before. It's not actually a a version of the parable. It's a true story that appeared in the Boston Globe as it recounted a most unusual wedding banquet. And that account reads like this. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, and pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements they liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill came to $13,000. 
After leaving a check for half that amount as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding invitations. So this is back in the 90s, in 1990. The day the invitations were supposed to be sent, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure. He said, it's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. When his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey. She said and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. You have two options, to forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry. Well, it seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Instead of inviting her friends, the woman decided to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. She sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. And that warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off of the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from their hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. Now here's the reality of all of this. None of us are actually worthy to attend the banquet that God has invited us to. We get in only because of God's grace. And so rather than positioning ourselves around the table or thinking, God, God's lucky to have me. We understand that we've actually been shown incredible hospitality, incredible grace by God. And here's the point. Because we've been shown such incredible grace. Because God has given us his hospitality, welcomed us to his table, we now welcome others to ours. So when you look closely at all the ethical commands in the New Testament, what you will find is that they are rooted in what Christ has done for us. So Jesus will say, love one another as I have loved you. Or Paul will tell us, forgive one another just as Christ in God forgave you. And when it comes to hospitality, this is what we read. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If we go back to our definition, radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors the family of God. So as we think about this discipline of hospitality, let's use it for the glory of God to advance his mission. Let's pray together. Father, we just pause to thank you this morning for your grace towards us. You have invited us not as those who are so worthy to be invited but you've invited us because you are a gracious 
host. And Lord, we pray that as we reflect on your grace towards us, we would extend it to others. We would extend it to people who are not like us, people who are different from us, and we would do it in such a way that advances your mission and reflects your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.